0: Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian Cosmopolitan's grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects to discuss the contents of another weekend's. But first, I had the great privilege this week of talking with Dr. Richard Beck, who is the author most recently of Reviving Old Scratch, Demons and the Devil for Doubters and the Disenchanted. It's a great book and we had a great conversation. I give you Richard Beck. All right, on the cast for the first time, Doctor Richard Beck, who I've been reading your blog for a while. Experimental theology, right? Right, that's right. I've been reading it for a while, and it's really great stuff—thought-provoking, uh, intellectually substantive, but also incredibly readable. I mean, people that aren't that don't have like multiple degrees in theology or something, they they could get on there and really engage great ideas. And I want to compliment you, your new book, "Reviving Old Scratch: Demons and the Devil." For doubters and the disenchanted, not only is it a great read, but I feel like so many academics that write books have lousy covers. And while you can't judge a book by its cover necessarily, it can it can make it easier, you know, to get into it. And I love the cover. It's red, black. You, the picture of Old Scratch, who is, of course, the, the devil.
1: The devil. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so wonderful.
0: I don't know if that was you or or your publisher but No,
1: it was Fortress Press. They get all the credit. Yeah, they did a great cover for me.
0: So, it's really interesting. It, you know, it seems like as I read your book, I was thinking about the problem we have talking about race in this country. And it seems like similar to the problem with spiritual warfare, right? Like if I feel like there's one group, one segment of the culture where Everything is racism, you know, like, mm-hmm. like racism is animate, animates every live, every thing in the culture. And there's another group in the culture that nothing is racism unless there's a cross burn with the Klansman mm-hmm. present. There's nothing. Although it's funny because the everything is racism is generally the left culture left. And the, the, there's no real racism I, I, except for rare instances anymore is the right. Is it right to say that it, it kind of is transversed around demonology and things like that, that the people where there's no real demons are, be, actually become the left, and, uh-huh. and, and and the people where it's Frank Peretti, a demon around every corner, you know, oh my gosh, my carburetor's <laughs> not working. There's, it's the carburetor demon. I mean, is there, is there some parallel there between those realities?
1: Yeah, I think so. Every, as I wrote the book, and I've been talking about it since its publication, it does seem like these, this whole conversation, racism, spiritual warfare- the, the, the conservative-liberal debate between morality versus systemic injustices, it, it seems like we're always forced into false dichotomies. and it, It's very hard for some reason to stake out a middle ground, and I think that middle ground is important because like w- with something like racism, it's not purely reducible to just a systemic uh, injustice. It's often a heart problem. Uh, but it's not just a heart problem. There are systemic issues. And it just seems like any Christians, liberal, conservative, engage in any of these conversations, they're forced to choose between the two. And I think, per your observation, miss the whole the whole pattern um, that is that is behind the whole thing.
0: Now, in your book, you suggest for thorny issues like how we think about spiritual realities, particularly dark and nefarious ones, and racism, maybe if we all took improv classes, we would pick up on a tool that would let us— avoid some of the false dichotomies and reductionism
1: yeah that's i I use the the classic improv rule which is yes and and i should give credit to my wife here because i'm married to a theater teacher uh so i've taken taken a cue from my wife Jana that yeah so in in improv if somebody in in a scene gives you a premise they come in and saying ouch my head hurts or boy i've had a bad day today you're not supposed to just block them they call it blocking where you just Negate it. Just say, no, you don't. Your head doesn't hurt because that just kills the forward momentum. Um, Instead, you're supposed to say yes. You're supposed to accept that premise that their head hurts and then add something to it. So yes, and. So I kind of start the book off uh, with that as a a, a way of doing theology, a way of stepping through the false dichotomy by saying I don't have to choose. It's not either or. It's yes, and. And so there's lots to be said about these subjects. So rather than shut down the conversation on the liberal or conservative side – embrace the truth that is there but then add what you want to say to it the other part whether if you're a liberal you're going to add in the systemic part and if you're conservative you might talk about spirits or morality or other sorts of things that are important to your vision of the world now you also say that in
0: we live in a world that is characterized at least in part and you're kind of referenced charles taylor here but then the the reality of disenchantment that the steel trap of modernity i think Weber calls it you know leads to like efficiency you know and you can get strawberries in december and you you don't get as many viruses and things like this but we live in a disenchanted world and you say that leads to the scooby-doo theology now i was a huge scooby-doo fan as a kid my favorite episode was when batman and robin were on
1: yeah, yeah, that's like Scooby-Doo 2.0 when they started yeah. doing like longer, longer hours Yes, right. They, yeah, they had the Three Stooges, Batman and Robin. exactly. Yeah, Laurel yeah. and Hardy. That was, that <laughs> exactly. was the,
0: they, that might have been when way to the shark though, I'm not sure. But.
1: I think, I agree, I think the Harlem Globetrotters was the moment it jumped the shark. Oh, that shark. was
0: awesome! Yeah, I remember, the, I, I forgot the Globetrotters episode. <laughs> yeah, can you believe that?
1: Yeah, so I uh, borrowed Charles Taylor's work and other sociologists who argue that, you know, in the last 500 years, the world's increasingly become disenchanted, that is the spooky, haunted world is now governed by science and technology, and so it's just harder for many people and i 'd say many Christians to believe in the enchanted spiritual worldview that the Bible inhabits, and so they struggle a lot with very robust articulations and beliefs regarding angels or demons or demon possession or the devil himself and so the book is is mainly written for people who struggle from that end now obviously those kinds of christians read a bible that is inhabited by the devil and demons and so they got to do something with that language and so i i describe what they do As Scooby Dooification. And so in the early Scooby Doo episodes, the kids show up at a town where there's a, you know, a ghost or a goblin that's haunting the town. And so it's a very enchanted, the the story begins as Scooby Doo, very enchanted. But by the end of the show, they unmask the ghost as a human agent. Like it's Mr. Jenkins, the the greedy banker. And so Scooby Dooification in my book is that tendency among skeptical Christians, disenchanted Christians who try to read uh, and look for the human element in every biblical story. That makes the story easier to believe because they're believing in human beings. But what it does is it makes the spiritual aspect of the story where Satan would come in harder to believe.
0: You have, you have so many great metaphors. We could just talk about the metaphors you choose. <laughs>
1: you, you use
0: Thomas Jefferson as your primary example with the Jeffersonian Bible as the Swiss cheese Jesus. You wind up with a Jesus that uh, – a Jesus is exorcist. Jesus is spiritual warrior. Take that out. Take that out. And maybe on the right, there's some, you know, and more conservative Christians kind of take out things that would make Jesus at odds with uh, contemporary family values, which sometimes look more like pagan Roman family values. But
1: mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> but yeah, why the Swiss cheese Jesus? Well, if people don't know, uh, Thomas Jefferson, one of the things he he had, he was one of those disenchanted Christians. I mean, he was considered to be the great apostle of the Enlightenment amongst the founding fathers. So. He was a, a child of the age of reason, so he found all the miraculous aspects of the of the gospels really hard to believe in, and so what he decided to do is just literally cut them out. So he literally got scissors and glue, cut out all miraculous uh, references in the scriptures, and, and felt what he left behind after he pasted it all back together in, in what's called the Jefferson Bible was just a, a strict moral description of Jesus as a, as a great kind of teacher of wisdom. And so that's a very disenchanted Jesus. It's a Jesus where it's a Scooby Doo Jesus where he just wanted to look for the human element. In this case, the moral element in Jesus' teaching and strip out all supernatural references. So in Thomas Jefferson's Bible, the last thing that happens in the gospel is Jesus is buried because that's the last human thing that happens. And so all references to the supernatural resurrection are literally cut out. And so that's that Swiss cheese Jesus, where we're all kind of like Thomas Jefferson, cutting around parts of the gospel accounts, the parts of the Jesus that we find uncomfortable. And we have something that's a little bit more not, not as complete. And for many Christians, it's the, the references to his exorcisms and the supernatural miracles.
0: So, do you know that you have an authentic Jesus? If it's like the Lindburger Jesus, like it smells a little bit, you can't get can't get past the aroma. Like if there's not a Lindburger factor, do you have a domesticated Swiss cheese Jesus? Is
1: that the thing? I, you know, I, I think that's an. Well, I'm to I'm going to say great metaphor, sir. Um, yeah, well done, <laughs> Lindburger Jesus. No, I think that's true I, in my own hermeneutical approach to Jesus, I I think I'm closer to him when he's making me uncomfortable. Uh, when he's rubbing it up against my sensibilities. And I, and I kind of come at Christianity from a more liberal, disenchanted perspective. It's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. And so, yeah, those are the parts of the Jesus that maybe stank a little bit to me, or there there was a little bit of friction there. So, yeah, I would encourage people that when they're reading Jesus, if they feel pretty comfortable, if they feel like Jesus is kind of right there on their shoulder, kind of amening everything that they say on Facebook or Twitter, then maybe they got a domesticated Jesus, uh, a Swiss cheese Jesus, where they've left some things out. Um, that would be disturbing about who he was and what he said or did. So, yeah, I think Jesus should kind of keep you up at night.
0: You do some great biblical work, and I think ask some pointed questions. Again, it probably targeted initially at people who are want to dismiss the Satan language. Which It's funny because it reminded me of a book by Susan Neiman called Evil in Modern Thought, where she, it's a kind of history of modern philosophy, but yeah. she looks about the, the Lisbon earthquake and how that basically rocked the, the continent of Europe, but basically, you know, she takes philosophy to task because she says, you know, whenever we're talking about the difference in is and ought, we're touching on evil, you know, Mm -hmm. that we're talking about things. So I think you kind of just talk about how the word satan is just adversary. And and like any narrative, there's conflict. And so all the narrative around the kingdom of God's inbreaking and the presence of Jesus, there are satans to all of it, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. What's a helpful way to sort of have a more robust approach to the satan?
1: well i i I'm beginning with again kind of liberal or disenchanted skepticism about the devil, but and when you talk to a lot of liberals, you know the one thing they love about Jesus is his love, you know Jesus is preaching this a message of lifting up the least of these love, inclusion, grace, and mercy um, and yet these are the very same people that struggle with believing in the devil but if you if you grab a hold of the language of adversary or opponent then obviously you got to believe in some force in the world and how you envision that force we could maybe talk about you know down down the road but you have to believe in some force out there that is very oppositional to love and grace and mercy and inclusion so almost implicit in in any vision of love is a, a corresponding vision of hate any vision of inclusion is going to have you know mechanisms of or systems of exclusion that are working against, that are oppositional to what we would call the kingdom of God. So using that language of opposition and adversary I think is a hook for doubting Christians to say, you know, I might not believe in a, in a guy in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork. But I most definitely see in the world forces working against the kingdom of God. As I envision it, as a kingdom of grace and mercy, and so I think that provides a foothold for everybody to kind of get on board with this conversation about what the Satan might be doing in the world.
0: Now, you say in your book, you're with Hannah Arendt, that the devil is boring. Why is the devil boring? Because he always seems like exciting in film to <laughs> me. I mean, you know, like, that's one character that's never. I mean, Jesus sometimes looks boring in the in some of the Jesus films, but. Devil, like, never is boring. Even in Mel Gibson's movie. (laughs) The devil's awesome. That's right.
1: Well, I think part of the... Going back to, to an earlier reference about... When I when I was in school, the Frank Peretti books came out. And I don't know if you listeners know those books, but this present darkness was. So there seems to be this fascination with the exorcist or paranormal activity. This very exotic vision of the devil that that is fascinating. I get that. It makes for great movies and great novels. But if but what's interesting about that is if if we reduce the devil to the exotic or the occult, he kind of loses his day to day relevance because those those aren't things that we t- typically think we're going to bump into standing in line at the supermarket today. I don't know where you're shot, but uh, (laughs) that's true. You know, and and so it's fascinating. I've had a lot of conversations post-publication of the book about whether or not I think demon possession is real or whether or not Satan exists. But more often than not, once you get to the end of that conversation, we've essentially defined the devil as existing but irrelevant. Because he's mm. not really a, a player in day-to-day existence. And so I grabbed a hold of Hannah Arendt's her, – her phrase, The Banality of Evil, it's a book she wrote about the Adolf Eichmann trial. He was a, a, a Nazi war criminal, and when she went and saw Eichmann during his trial, she noticed that he kind of offered the same excuse that all the Nazi war criminals gave, which is, why, why did you do what you did? Like, why did why, you do these evil things? And more often than not, they said, I'm just doing my job. I was following orders. And she coined the phrase "The banality of evil to kind of describe the way we get embedded in in the status quo and the way we get kind of embedded in systemic structures, oppressive structures, and we don't even see how we are complicit in those structures because we're just doing our job or and it's not our responsibility to kind of say no. so I try to grab a hold of Aaron's argument that the devil is boring, the devil's been banal to kind of put us all on the hook to kind of say Satan is that kind of unseen backdrop, institutionally or systemically, that I'm just kind of a cog in the machine. And because I'm just a cog in the machine, I never notice the evil outcomes of the machine because it's not my responsibility to take responsibility for for that evil. And so I think that's one of the greatest tricks the devil kind of plays on us is by spreading thin the uh, moral accountability. So nobody, people get hurt, but nobody feels guilty.
0: Yeah, this is like C.S. Lewis says, right? And Is it mere Christianity where Nobody does evil for evil's sake. It's always for some other end. You know, the uh, you know, for my pleasure or for Germany's goodness. That yeah, Rent says, look, this guy's a bureaucrat. I mean, he's just he's you know, he, I was loving country, following orders. You you talk about atonement theory in relationship to the relation, the struggle with real spiritual forces of darkness, and you you point to some of the problems with the penal substitutionary view. Ex- explain why you see that as having a difficult time dealing with the reality of old scratch, the devil, and his forces, however we kind of understand them. What, what, Why and what would be, what are some alternative ways to think about it?
1: Yeah, again, I'm coming at a lot of these questions from kind of more of the progressive side of the Christian community. Uh, and one of the complaints you hear amongst Christians on the progressive or liberal wing is just concerns over the idea that God demands a blood sacrifice to be appeased, and that's a vision that kind of sits behind a lot of atonement theories in churches that that God, because of His holiness, demands you know our our very lives, that Jesus provides his life, God kills Jesus, and therefore he atones for our our sin. A lot of people struggle with the violence behind that, the bloodthirsty vision of God behind all of that, and so they're they're shopping around for alternative atonement models, and one of the ones that they're really attracted to is a view called Christus Victor. And it was – it has the benefit of kind of being the the first, one of the earliest visions of the atonement, and that is the idea that Jesus is a great liberator who – that humanity is bound in slavery to the power of death and to the power of the devil. And Jesus effects this great rescue operation by freeing us from the clutches of these dark, oppressive forces, freeing us from Satan's clutches. This is the atonement model, by the way, of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the witch, the white witch – has a blood claim on Edmund who betrays his family and Aslan substitutes himself for Edmund. But the, the beauty of that model in the eyes of many progressives is that Aslan is nonviolent. It's the witch, the Satan figure who has all the violence. And so God is wholly benevolent and nonviolent in this atonement model. But the trouble with that is, is that although lots of liberals and progressives are attracted to Christus Victor, they are the very same Believers who are the disenchanted amongst us, they have the strongest skepticisms about the devil. So I kind of point out that irony in the book that lots of – there's lots of energy around Christus Victor as an atonement model, but it lacks the belief in oppressive spiritual slavery and bondage required for that whole emancipation atonement uh, mechanism to work. Now, isn't Anselm
0: a demythologizer? In the sense of when he comes up with early substitutionary atonement models, isn't it because he's he's looking at some of the folk religion around demonology? That I mean, how could because I mean, isn't the one of the holes in the line the witch and the wardrobe approaches? How could God owe Satan, right. <laughs> and then yeah. even the debt is still paid with a substitution? So, isn't there a kind of I wonder is is the problem with. Substitutionary atonement is because the way it gets preached in churches, in some churches, is instead of Jesus died because God loves us, it becomes Jesus had to die so that God could love us.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. A couple of different things there. I think you're right. I, I think it's very hard to completely get around substitutionary language and atonement. There, there is something about Jesus substituting himself and and, and absorbing the consequences of our sin that. Those are avoided because Jesus dies for us. I think it can be pre- – that, that substitutionary dynamic can be preached really poorly like you're, or well, given what you were saying. Yes, and I do think substitutionary atonement in Anselm and sense was due to the fact of an increasingly heavy weight that was given to the devil that, that we, we, we find – we struggle with giving the devil that much power – like, why would God need to bargain with the devil? It just doesn't seem like God would need to bargain from the devil. It, it doesn't seem like Jesus would need to die to free us from the devil. He could just kind of forcibly take us – take us away from the devil's grasp. So I do think, yes, that substitution atonement came to replace some of the increasing queasiness we feel in the outsized role the devil played in Christus Victor atonement. All I would point out, to is that if we do want to recover Christus Victor, yeah, we're still going to have to deal with that problem. I don't know if any atonement language, if it's reduced to a pure theory or mechanism, gets gets away scot-free. You're always going to have to do some work around the edges, and I think Christus Victor requires some of that adjustment as well.
0: Do you ever worry that the kind of nuanced theology you're doing, that has been Big weaknesses, you'll never get movie deals or theme parks. I feel like if you're a total demythologizer, you got the <laughs> Da Vinci Code franchise, or you know, if you're the guys out in Kentucky, the Ken Ham, you get an arc, you got a good, but you know, what do you, how do you, how do you, how do you sort of have a theme park or film around something that's real yet slightly depersonalized, existential, and yet object? I mean, you gotta, that you need somebody that's got a good imagination for screenplays.
1: No, I agree. I think that's one of the, the other reasons why I wrote the book is because I think when you lose the kind of almost the, the conflict at the heart of the gospel story, that struggle between Jesus and the Satan, kind of a, a dynamic, animating, energizing core is lost. If Jesus just becomes this really, really nice guy who just loves everybody, that might be true, but, but it lacks a kind of a compelling engine that uh, that I think grabs a lot of people. And I think that's one of the reasons why fundamentalisms abound is because they give people a really, really good story and they ask people to step into an adventure and they ask people to kind of like participate in a fight. Like there's a conflict and you're, you're needed in this fight. And I think a lot of doubting and disenchanted Christians just have lost that ability to kind of sell this fight that that we're in, a struggle, a, a great call to arms. And I think it's because we've gotten really anxious with that language of a call to arms. The whole language of warfare and spiritual warfare bothers us because we've seen it used really badly by fundamentalists. So we want to avoid it altogether, but at the risk of what you just described, a lack of a an energizing Story and adventure that compels us to kind of get out of the bed and get in the game. Your your book, I mean, it's a it's
0: a book of an academic, but you're writing for a broader audience than than academia. So it's a work of kind of public theology, but it's also very a work of personal confession. I mean, you talk about learning the name Old Scratch, which is a name I didn't know was a name for the devil in prison ministry, and that some of the most intense spiritual warfare you've participated in has happened in the context of Holy Ghost conga dancing, conga lines.
1: Yeah. Well, that's one of those ironies, again, I approach in the book, is how I was drawn to prison ministry and to a church plant out in, the, uh, in my town that reaches out to poor and homeless people because of my impulse towards social justice, that Scooby-Doo thing, Right. If I if I struggle believing in the devil, at least I can believe in systemic evil. So I'm drawn to the margins of my town for that very impulse. But then, when I find myself in those locations, out at the prison, like I'll be out there tonight, on the margins of society and in the global Christianity, in the margins of global Christianity, you you run into a very enchanted, charismatic Pentecostal. Worldview where there is this clash between the forces of light and the forces of darkness, and so a large part of the book is the story of my trying to be present in the prison and with my friends on the margins, given all my doubts about spiritual warfare as I had come to understand it before that time.
0: And just a, one, one last question. You know, so much you talk about in the book how you can't get around this language of uh, opposition and accusation. I mean, the devil, the satan, the being the accuser. I'm wondering how in spiritual warfare the weapon of grace is deployed or its significance because it seems like the law is everywhere. If it's it, even if it's not moral, hey, you know, it's it I've got to be the perfect son or daughter or the perfect dysfunctional child or I've got to be the perfect academic. We find ourselves all the time up against the sting of these demands made on us. And mm-hmm. I guess that the 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 boring devil kind of is probably lurking in some of those Subtle, but sometimes debilitating demands. How is grace part of the arsenal that is liberative for the human condition?
1: Well, you know, one of the texts I talk about in this book, and another book I wrote called The Slavery of Death, is from Hebrews 2, where it says that um, Jesus came to, to... to set us free from the power of the devil. And the power of the devil, he describes as the fear of death. Uh, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, to set us free from those who were enslaved all their lives to the fear of death. And so, and so as a psychologist, when I think about the fear of death, yeah, there's, there's you know, the fear of lo- not having food and not having water, you know, physical death. But for a lot of us, the fear of death manifests this, the way you're talking about. It, it manifests itself as trying to live a meaningful life in the face of death, to, to matter. So, the, the question, for significance and status and meaning in life in, in the face of death. And a lot of that is, is how we construct our self-esteem. We, we, our self-esteem is built around being successful by some metric that our culture gives us, some metric of success or significance. I think Henry Nouwen once said that the three great temptations are the temptation to be uh, powerful, spectacular, and relevant and when we don't feel powerful spectacular relevant we feel shame or guilt the low self esteem you're talking about and so i think that's where grace combats the power of the devil in our lives because grace is that sense of gift that that snaps the fear and the anxiety uh, of of failing in the in the heroic pursuit of self esteem or what we would call to use some old religious language works based righteousness the, the my own personal efforts to build a life for myself and then to protect it from all other people who might um, be rivals or competitors. So I think grace is, is the ground floor of how we snap that fear. And then, and then that's out of that grace that we love. So we love because he first loved us. So I talk a lot about neurotic anxiety in my work, that neurotic anxiety of shame and guilt that manifests as depression or low self-esteem or insecurity and how that's how the devil is often fighting us that would call it our inner demons and grace i think is trying to wage the battle deep in our hearts to make us feel loved and, and and beloved of god because if we win that battle then the rest flows pretty naturally
0: richard beck thanks for joining us on the podcast and again the book is reviving old scratch demons and the devil for Doubters and the Disenchant. Everybody, get a copy of this book. It's a great
1: read. Hey, thanks for having me. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sewing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, boy, let me tell you what. I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you'd care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now, you play pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your soul, because I think I'm better than you. The boy said, My name's Johnny, and it might be a sin, but I'll take your bet you're going to regret, because I'm the best as ever been. Johnny, you're up your boy, and play your fiddle hard, because hell's broke loose
0: in Welcome back to yet another mocking cast. And I have with me Sarah Condon from Texas. Hey, hey. How are you, Sarah?
2: Good, we're good. Back to school.
0: And the kids are going back to school and yep. you're, you're getting your, you know, your days back, I suppose.
2: I am. I am.
0: I love it. And Jeff Holsklaw sitting in for David Zoll, the animating force of the zeitgeist had reproduced again. He and Kate, their newest child is Thomas Zoll. So Mazeltov prayers, blessings for them. And Jeff is coming to us from Chicago. How are you, yeah, Jeff? Yeah. We
3: have the central time zone being represented now here for what, all you what? East Coasters. Yep, Sarah
0: and I. <laughs> yeah, these. that's right. You really, you guys are, are. I'm the minority, distinctly, mm-hmm. time-wise. That's right. So, well, I was trying to think of what effect that would have, though, because we all gotten the same amount of sleep ostensibly. I mean, wait, maybe am I like an hour, we're recording in the morning, so maybe I've had an hour, I'm an hour more into my morning. You yeah, had more
3: coffee, possibly?
0: Yeah, I don't you know. probably had more coffee. I probably did. Let's just get right to it because someone sent the, the crack crew at our Charlottesville headquarters as people often do little tidbits to possibly include in another weekend. And somebody sent something about an app called Facetune, which is interesting because it's actually been out, it looks like, for a while. So this is not a breaking news story. But this is like Photoshop for your iPhone or iPad
2: yeah pretty amazing do you guys have it
3: I don't I didn't know about it until uh, until we, s- we started thinking about it here but I, th- I think Scott has it though he has more coffee today and he has a tuned
0: face I have face too, <laughs> yes and I I think I got it maybe through apps gone free or something which is an app that sends you every day a list of the apps that go free in the app store for usually for a day or a day and a half so it is phenomenal you it's like it is like Photoshop without needing to know how to do Photoshop. So you just sort of like, it's all just like drag. and
3: Which means you can like change your face, you can get rid of your pimples, you can like puff up your lips, you can bring in your cheeks. You can just like change your entire online persona through this app. No more color filtering like on Instagram. Now it's full on face tuning. Can't believe it. It's a scandal, Scott, that you have this on
0: your phone. So if any of our listeners would like me to touch up a photo, they can send (laughs) a photo to Scott Jones. This has got to be a boom ember.com. for
3: online dating sites. Like, I'm oh, sure all yeah. those photos have just like drastically increased in in uh, you know, how how good people look.
2: Well, I it, didn't know this was a thing. I mean, I I knew that people were fixing their photos like celebrities, but I didn't know that like normal people were fixing their photos. So, um, now quote, unquote, that I've seen the normal and, people? Normal people. Now that I've seen the before and after because they, this article has it, I it's am striking. seeing a friends of mine who must have done this because it look you almost look like you're on the cover of a magazine. I mean the way it smooths like your whole it's like you have makeup on and you don't have makeup on. It's amazing.
3: From the product listing, you can have perfect skin a perfect right. smile, and perfect hair. This is for the men who might have balding patches or a little gray. You can kind of get rid of that, which is yeah. actually, you know, I could I could find a use for that.
2: What about babies sure. who have eczema? Could you do that? I mean, you know what I mean? Ooh, like they've got a little go. eczema on their cheeks, just like put them under, and then suddenly your baby's like super glamorous. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. It's, it's all doable.
2: It's amazing. <laughs> oh, my
3: goodness. This like plays into all my worst thoughts about online personas and artificial lives and putting your best foot forward and everything, so I, yeah. which could take over this whole program. So I think. We should but you move know what, on. Jeff? Know. You know
2: what? I'm too lazy to whiten my teeth in real life. Like I know there's a kit. I know I could buy it. I know I could do it every night, and two weeks my teeth would look better. But I'm just too lazy to do it. So I'm happy to know that there's a way for me to have whiter teeth. Like at least I just online. want the
3: little gleam sparkle. I want like where's the where's the the picture app that puts the gleam sparkle on your teeth. That'd awesome. that be
0: perfect. My teeth are pretty white, and what I do is, I first off, I floss every day. Yeah, and I don't. I, after the floss, I rinse with hydrogen peroxide. Right. Then I then I brush. Then I use clear Listerine, like regular Listerine. Then I use whitening Listerine for the finish. But why oh. do you bother doing that? Because you have Facetune now.
2: Oh my gosh, right? Because
0: one of my best friends is a dentist, and uh. he like I, I like to get an A plus when I go in to the dentist office which is Rittenhouse Dentistry Dr. David Gardner if you're in the Philadelphia area he is the best dentist in the region if not the country little plug so there you go uh, you know it's it's interesting though okay let's say you get a headshot done for something you know let's say you're uh, you know promoting something or and they're going to do all that touch up stuff right so this is what every like this is uh, you know I'm sure That Jeff, I'm sure when you get a a picture for Northern Seminary, they touch it up a little bit. Or so basically, it's okay to have the touch photo, touched up photo, as long as you don't do the touching up.
2: Fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: Yeah.
3: that's true, right? So if you spend you know a couple hundred bucks to do a professional photo shoot, get the makeup, get someone to do your hair, uh, and then you get the photographer, and then they touch it up, and then you get your you know whatever your book blurb or whatever product you're selling, it's like. Okay, so this is no different than that, right? So, okay, Jeff has to retract all of his scathing remarks. There you go. <laughs> I'm a flip flopper. That's why you have me on.
0: I feel I, I feel unscathed. now.
3: <laughs> so really, Scott, li- you're just
0: thrifty. So good. I, mean, I am. It good I'm for good, you. St-
2: it's good stewardship.
0: <laughs> so and again, listeners, if you want me to touch up your photo, send it to me. I, I've I've only used it a couple times, but I'm sure I could be good with it.
2: I mean, we're gonna put up the before and the after, obviously, but exactly. Send them uh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, also uh, in the fun
0: category, somebody forwarded this letter that – there's several articles on it. So it's not like brand new, but apparently somebody's written about it again. This letter that T.S. Eliot wrote to George Orwell in response to uh, Animal Farm. I guess that T.S. Eliot was – I don't know if he worked for it. it was just one of the consulting kind of editors for Faber and Faber who took a pass on Animal Farm. And the way he explains his – criticism like why he passed on is fascinating right
3: oh yeah i thought it was super interesting
2: yeah we were talking earlier about the what was needed was not more communism but more public spirited pigs <laughs> Uh, yeah, which yeah, I love. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and T. S. L. A obviously I would think had a firm grasp of original sin, but perhaps not original sin in pigs. So um yeah, it's pretty fascinating.
0: Yeah, he's being kind of ironic, right? Because he's saying that, you know, that one of the things he says is a problem is that basically uh there's this critique in Animal Farm, which is a parable, of course, about these pigs that take over the farm and they're kind of Stalinist. And, you know, the one it's Snowball who is like the helper of the head, the Stalin type pig, gets run out, right? So there's this like implicit, like, oh, is this like a tr- like is this like a a plea for a pure communism? Like, if it would have been pure, would it have been more effective? And he, that's where he says that. he thinks that. His sympathies are Trotskyite, but it's not convincing because you split your vote without getting any compensating stronger adhesion from either party, i.e. those who criticize Russian tendencies from the point of view of a pure communism and those who, from a very different point of view, are alarmed about the future of small nations. After all, your pigs are far more intelligent than the other animals and therefore the best qualified to run the farm. (laughs) In fact, there couldn't have been an animal farm at all without them. So that what was needed, someone might argue, was not more communism but more public-spirited
2: pigs fantastic
0: (laughs) and then he says i'm sorry you know i love you i'm very sorry because whoever publishes this will naturally have the opportunity of publishing your future works and i have regard for your work because it's good writing of fundamental integrity
2: (laughs) i love that i mean that's like the that's like the best closed rejection letter like we don't like this but we know you're capable of good things so yeah, no, it's great.
3: If only we had that much honesty in publishing these days. Now it's just like, oh, it's it's horrible. Or or it's like, we can't take it now. It's really great, but we just can't take it. It's like, right. At least he gave reasons for it. That's fantastic.
2: Right. He solidly read it.
3: I would love to what? have uh, heard Orwell's uh, response to that letter. That would have mm-hmm. been, <laughs> that's what we really need. Where is that letter that he sent off to someone else?
0: Well, it's interesting to, do you know, like T.S. Eliot was a PhD student at Harvard in the early 20s. He studied with William James as an undergraduate, Josiah Royce, uh, Bertrand Russell. Basically, he studied with half of all the best philosophers in the early 20th century. He wrote a dissertation on F.H. Bradley on Reason and Experience. I think it was on Reason and Experience. I've actually read part of this dissertation, but this was such a good time at Harvard. There have been several books written on just one of the graduate seminars Elliot was in. So Josiah Royce said about his dissertation that this is the work of a master, an expert. Bertrand Russell wrote Eliot's parents and said they, they were thinking, which you know, this is unimaginable, <laughs> freshly out of graduate school, they were thinking about offering him a chair in the department. He went on a trip to England and didn't defend his dissertation. He left philosophy completely because he thought it had become not like what Kant thought philosophy was or should be the science of sciences, but just another rundown ac- academic department. And it was funny because Eliot turned to... Literary criticism and became a man of letters to do what he thought philosophy should do, which was not explanation but thick description. And he thought that you know he thought that the problem with explanations is they assume they're this sort of one sided thing that assume eternal truth as opposed to descriptions which can always be built on and collaborated with. And you see some of this generosity even in this in this letter. So I just think I I have incredibly high regard for T.S. Eliot and. I think that, like, in some ways, he's a model for civic and public life. And also, it's so like he had such a restraint and measure. You know, his most famous political treatise is called Notes Toward Understanding of Culture, right? It's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal piece. Who published something called Notes? <laughs> Notes Towards It. You know, it's just the epistemic Does humility. Dostoevsky,
3: Notes from the Underground. Just a Dostoevsky
0: that's just the day of what dust hey. well from the other end I was reading
3: some letters by Orwell about his uh, childhood upbringing and he taught you know just from the other side possibly is he like went to a pretty prestigious boarding school but he was like middle class or lower class and the teachers and the students always held that over him and so he was like super smart and they like Mm -hmm. trotted him around as like this like uh, student genius along with all the others but they always put him down for being the underclass and like oh your parents can't really afford to come here but because you're so smart we'll let you hang out and so he kind of he has this complex you know with that kind of like intelligentsia and upper classes so that's why i said i'd love to see orwell's response to t.s Eliot's because they're coming from a very different life situations possibly so anyhow just throw that out there two very interesting characters engaging each other
0: yeah it's really interesting too like you you know Eliot thought that that really you know the only the believer can know anything that he thought, and he wrote this ten years before he became a Christian. He was baptized at age twenty-eight. But he said, "Only the person of faith can know anything." You know, so basically, the, the theorist that's asking all these abstract questions can never really get knowledge. But it wasn't rejection of theory because he thought that without theorists and questions, you wouldn't have anything interesting. Every all all discourse would become like small talk with a relative. So, it, it, so we, you needed theoretical questioning to kind of to kind of open up things but but yet the the that ultimate truth would never really be found by these sort of detached abstract theorists, so I could go on about Elliot,
2: but we don't I need would to. have paid a lot more attention to seminary if you'd been teaching a class, Scott a lo- <laughs> one I would more have done side less note. shoe shopping if you'd been one, teaching what, a class. What, 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 one
0: more interesting side note in the in, in the, it, when Elliot was in graduate school, this is how like redundant and in banal philosophy was they would sit around and debate the sentence whether it has meaning the present king of france is bald right so this is the debate like does language have to refer to something to mean something wow. right like so there is no present king of france okay because it's a you know it's a And so Eliot's response was why well, there is a, a king of france after all and by gosh he's bald and he said that even illusions have reality they have illusory reality. So we've made this king of France out of our out of our graduate seminars. Like, wow. So he thought the whole thing was absurd. Dropped the mic and went to England.
3: Down, London calling to the underworld. Come out of the cupboard, you boys and girls. London calling, now don't look to us. Phony Beatlemania is putting the dust. London calling, see we ain't got no swing except for the ring.
0: Now, on from philosophy and T.S. Eliot and pigs and Facetune to science at work, it to, uh, rather to T-Mobile and positivity in the workplace. And apparently T-Mobile had some policies about kind of legislating positivity that were ruled by a higher court. That, or it was this National Labor Rights Board actually that said this. The board held it was ambiguous and vague enough to have a chilling effect on the right of employees to speak freely and to organize <laughs> rights guaranteed from the National Labor Relations Act. So it, you know, they go on to say that because the positive work environment was never explicitly described, workers would have to err on the side of oversensitivity, steering clear of potentially controversial but protected communication in the workplace, as the ruling put it, lest they be punished. So, how are you guys? Are you guys happy at your workplace Can you speak your <laughs> mind? Can you speak your mind? Wait, wait. Let me call your employers to make sure they're listening. That's
2: right. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so when I was reading this, I kept thinking of workers comp. I was like an admin at, it was like workers comp insurance, which is like a terrible, terrible environment to work in anyway, because it's like these guys will call in cause they're hurt. And like the first thing we do is just like drug test them to the hilt, you know? So, I mean, it was, it was a, the ethos of the place is not great anyway. And then I remember like to make up for it once a month, they would just bring in like an enormous amount of junk food and like ice cream and potato chips and everything. And like, and it was like, y- I remember so clearly and I was probably 23 years old walking into this, you know, break room space and all the executives are sitting watching all of like the the lower classes eat all this food. It was so disturbing, but this was like their positive like, you know, like moment for everyone. Um, which of course didn't work, but was just, This is like Animal Farm updated. It was immeasurably the pigs disturbing. On the chairs, <laughs> really and you got everyone in like they just. Oh my gosh, it was terrifying to me. So yeah, but they were very, I I, I think in part because the work we were doing was so dark, there was this, it tried to be met with this um, extreme positivity. And I happened to like, I was like a lowly admin, but I happened to work right next to the HR department. And I've never seen people struggle so much to do their work, like, you know. Yeah, it was pretty fascinating. So I kept thinking of this as I was reading the piece.
0: Do you ever see The Simpsons where Homer gets to be like the union rapper spokesperson for and he goes into Mr. Burns' office and like you know, the the, the environment's unsafe, the duke all this stuff. He's like, Well, you know, when they have fish sticks, we don't even get you know, that white stuff, a like tartar sauce. Oh, let the fools have that tartar sauce. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're just like, they're just scooping out like gobs of tartar sauce. Everybody's in the unsafe work environment, but they're so happy with their fish sticks. Exactly.
2: Yeah.
3: I kept thinking about the service industry. Like, it really felt like, uh, this article was more about like corporate kind of positivity and workplace environment. But I was thinking, you know, I've been in the service industry. I worked like restaurants, coffee shops through college and, you know, seminary and things like that. And even like the Chick-fil-A down the road, it's like, it's so creepy how happy and positive every single employee at a Chick-fil-A is. That I was just thinking during this article, I was like, "Well, they better not get sued because I know this is in their employee handbook: is to be positive and gracious and thankful." And so I was thinking, you know, my wife was in like a health benefits call center for like a year; she hated it. And I think that there is like this sense of like, "Well, if you're doing customer service, you always have to be nice. Customer can't be wrong." And then immediately when the phone like is hung up or the customer's gone and there's nobody in the restaurant or the coffee shop then it's just like oh I can't believe and then like all the employees just let loose about all their mm-hmm. disdain for all the people mm-hmm. and so there's this total like kind of two-faced nature to a lot of service industry things and so I don't know so that's how I was I was feeling like they're kind of missed a whole workplace like a whole um area of work in the service industry and you know where i think positivity is enforced and, and for customer service reasons i think you know people kind of expect that so but it is interesting and they really talked about if you you require positivity it usually backfires becomes like a law and then there's all this inauthenticity which i think is you see that all the time in You know, you see that even in churches, right? You're supposed to be happy and clappy and joyful. And
2: really interesting questions for people who are in ministry about what does it mean? I mean, in the article, they basically said, um, if you're in a work environment where you can't be yourself, it just drains you and depletes you to the point that you then have to find a place to be yourself. So, you know, how are we- You know where
0: that place is? You know where that place is? Uh, it's, the there's a support group. I was just kidding. It's a support group at five
2: o'clock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it meets every week. Vodka, preferably yeah. strawberry flavored. Yeah. Yeah. I keep thinking of this Bishop of Blessed Memory, Ed Salmon, who just died, Episcopal Bishop, died, gosh, I guess probably six weeks ago. And he was just just so famous in the Episcopal Church for being straight up and honest in his ministry continuously, was always very joyful, but genuinely joyful. And there's some story, and I'm not going to get the facts right, but someone listening will know what I'm talking about, where a parishioner came in and basically brought him in a check and said, you know, you're going to do all of these things, and and then I'm going to pledge, and bishop Salmon just picked up the jacket and ripped it in two and was like we're not going to need your money here. So I do think there's this element of of being authentic and being real, I don't know, that I think will serve us in 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 any venue, but especially in ministry.
0: I thought actually too that if you wanted like empirical evidence for Lutheran religious psychology, it's this article. I mean, that, that actually Yeah, if people were, if things were, you know, they said that they did this exhaustive study and what they found was there was the old, you know, inverted U relationship between rule explicit and and effectiveness. Like if rules were overly vague or overly prescriptive, they had demotivating effect. But if they were in the moderate range with some explicit guidelines, but there was a lot of flexibility allowed, uh, that those things were conducive to a positive work environment and productivity. The highest performers of all were... Those in a moderately regulated environment who also felt a high degree of autonomy as determined by responses, their responses to a single statement. My job permits me to, to decide on my own how to go about doing my work. You know, it's interesting here that uh, I've heard Paul law say, you know, the law, the, 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 the sort of second use of the law res- as restraint, you know, as a stop sign, which is different than sort of uh, you, the law as condemning us and bringing us to a need for mercy or by trying to use the law to make us better people. It seems here that like where the law works is as a stop sign when or a seatbelt, where it's trying to create the basic possibility for thriving. It can make an environment that is conducive to human flourishing, but it can't make the human soul flourish or motivate the human soul, it seems that much. So I thought it was a really interesting analysis of not just workplace stuff and the safe space stuff or the, tri- the trigger spot stuff that we talk about so much, but also just a sort of really interesting piece about religious affections and psychology.
3: I thought what st- stood out to me, and there's a little bit unrelated there, is just that, you. Well, well, no, it is related, is they had this phrase of like, the price of emotional labor, is that these mm. positivity kind of mandates creates an emotional uh, turmoil or mm. emotional labor. And so, and then they were saying, well, what is the cost of that? And I see that in like pastoring, but also parenting. You know, I can put like emotional kind of expectations on my kids and, And that creates, you know, it kind of, it uses lots of energy to regulate our emotions in that way. Uh, So I just thought that was really interesting. That's something I've been wondering about as, you know, in my own parenting tactics is am I yeah am i using too much energy or causing my kids to use too much energy trying to regulate certain emotional responses rather than letting them just kind of like play out as they need and then move on or something like that so anyways that's a little unrelated but
2: no that's great that's yeah i think that's a that's a, another really interesting way to look at this it's like what are we actually capable of and what are we expecting of people you know what are we actually what is our 5 year old actually capable of and what are we expecting those mm-hmm. are two very different things So, yeah.
0: All all goes back to the Augustinian prayer, right? Lord, command what you will, and give me the grace to will what you command. Last, let's think for a little bit about the good old days, because you know what? you know we have a chance we have a chance this election cycle to make America great again. We do mm-hmm. so this was this is a really interesting piece that was passed that we discovered on ion, which I do not I've never read I, ion I guess it's like an online kind of magazine or journal, but it's all about n- the allure of nostalgia and how nostalgia is is this thing that is seemingly uh, it, 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 it just pervasive historically? Like it, the article opens with a passage from Hesiod, you know, 700 BC, which Golden was the first race of articulate folk created by the immortals who live on Olympus. They actually lived when Kronos was king of the sky, and they lived like gods, not a care in their hearts, nothing to do with hard work or grief and miserable old age didn't exist for them. From fingers to toes, they never grew old, and the good times rolled. Translation, by the way, from Stanley Lombardo. I don't know if he added that little good times roll, but that's just fascinating. Here, you know, The, the author here just shows how cross-culturally and trans-historically this addiction to nostalgia seems to be everywhere, and that he thinks it's pretty
2: deleterious. You all get nostalgic? I hate nostalgia. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm like known for this. I hate nostalgia. What are um, you known for? Yeah, that, well, in, in family circles where people will like hold up something and be like, this is why this is meaningful. I'm like, that's just a thing. That's not meaningful.
0: What's um, <laughs> something that you're lukewarm on.
2: You're a destroyer uh, of the past, Sarah. Are you lukewarm on anything? Like, Not really. No. So I had a I, I had a moment as a child that um. So when people talk about the good old days, which they love to talk about in the state of Mississippi, w- where they talk about nostalgia in that way, that that had it made such a massive impact on me. I was sitting in the living room and um of my house I grew up in, and I was watching MTV, and there were some uh black folks on the television rapping. I don't even remember who it was. And my parents had a client over, um, a young man who's probably in his 20s. And he walked through the living room with my father and he gestured towards the television. And in a way that white people will sort of codedly talk to one another about black people. He said to my father, don't you miss the good old days, Mr. Taylor? Don't you miss when things were different? And my dad looked at him and he said, son? In the good old days, people died of the common cold. (laughs) And I I think of that story anytime I think about nostalgia because I, I think nostalgia is dangerous for so many reasons. I think it allows us to maybe just tell a whole story that never happened and redefine ourselves in a way where we we forget our faults, we forget our sin and we forget our redemption. But I also mm-hmm. think nostalgia is dangerous for reasons they pointed to in this article because it encourages racism, it encourages xenophobia, it encourages this this idealic collective past that never existed. So yeah.
0: yeah, there's a great line. Fear and insecurity are the disease vector for stories about past and future glory.
2: <laughs> yeah. Fantastic.
0: nice, Jeff,
3: I think,
2: do you like nostalgia <laughs> uh,
3: well you know, I was just thinking about this, and even while you were talking about so I was raised in California, and so which you know which, you know which is you know the Telos of the United States, right am I yeah. right, right, and so like I think for us. It, uh, being raised in California, everything was very present, like, and moving forward, you know, I grew up in Silicon Valley, you know, so there's this myth of progress. Everything is like new and improved and space aged. My dad worked for an aerospace, you know, company. And so I don't really have this like nostalgic, uh, kind of, uh, ethos that maybe you experience, uh, in the South or probably in the East. Maybe Scott, you could speak to that. And so like in that sense, um, I think everything that, uh, they were talking about nostalgia I think is, is problematic but I kind of viewed it from the other end is that like I think nostalgia and utopia kind of usually go together is what we hope for the past is really what we want for the future and so you kind of you cast things in the past as the good old days but it's really because it's like well I want that for the future so i think that there's like some sort of linking there um which doesn't have to be bad but it often is bad depending on kind of you know how things you know play out or what we're hoping to accomplish so that's kind of that's kind of my experience although you know there's this great write-up scott you you let me know who it was um on mockingbird about uh Stranger Days and how they play with nostalgic kind of CJ,
0: CJ, CJ CJ Green, 23-year-old, writes this great has a 59-year-old, 73-year-old soul. I mean, that guy, fabulous piece, fabulous piece. So I
3: I think, like, for me, I'm a little fonder. Uh, Like, we have a very non-nostalgic family. It's kind of like Burn Down the Past and you keep moving forward. So I think, like, for me, there's kind of a fondness for things, you know, in the past gone by. So so that was kind of my personal and, uh, you know, I guess Californian reflection on the piece.
0: Love it. So it's interesting. I am uh, undertaking something right now, which I feel like uh, it's just uh, this is my contribution to making America great to saving Western <laughs> civilization. I, I've never read Ulysses, so I'm I'm undertaking to read Ulysses, and I've been doing some background reading on it. And this guy Jeffrey Pearl, who wrote a book, which I I think very highly of, and I think very highly of his work. Uh, it's called The Tradition of Return, and you know he he looks at why James Joyce chooses uh, first off chooses uh Ulysses, you know, the uh, which would be the um, Latinized rendering of Odysseus, right? Right, And he uses not the Iliad, right, the, the, but the Odyssey, the coming home. Pearl thinks that this is the sort of one of the, the primal. And the, the author of the IMP Piece says the same thing, that in, in the conclusion, he says that like one's childhood home, golden age myths can be difficult to leave behind. Perhaps it will be easier to let go knowing that the sooner we do, the sooner a real golden age may come to pass. I think that, that there is something primal in us, and I think some of it is because our own spiritual story is one where we're exiled and find ourselves east of Eden, barred from going back to paradise by the flaming sword. And I mean, the fl- it's a sword, you know, it, in the Old Testament, it, it's always a sign of judgment. And it's interesting, I think, one way to view the work of Christ is that it's to get us back to paradise, but but it's not. Christ does go under the sword at Calvary, but it's not to get us back to paradise. It's to undo what happened in the early part of the story so that we can go to the holy city, not get back to the garden. I mean, like the the garden was, the city was always meant to be the garden. It's, it's always, the city was always meant to be the telos of the garden and the holy city at the end of the Bible is better than the garden, even before the fall, because before the fall, Adam and Eve still have a sense that God comes and goes. But in the holy city, there, there is no temple. God is the light. God is everywhere and all in all. And there's no gate. You know, the, the wall doesn't need a gate because there's no threat. There's no threat of losing home again. So I think that, you know, Karl Barthes is a Christianity that is, not thoroughly eschatological, is no Christianity at all. And I could not agree more.
2: Yeah, I'd, I love that because I, I kept reading this and thinking, what does nostalgia mean for Christians? Like, mm-hmm. where where do, where does that fall into our theology? And, I mean, I, I mean there, sure, there's some nostalgia that, I mean, I come from such a liturgical tradition, and a lot of what gets passed on in liturgy can be classified as nostalgia. I mean, that some of those things we do for reasons that, are because we've always done them. I mean, sure, people will argue back and say there are theological reasons and they can tell me what they are. But by and large, most of the people sit on the pews and they experience liturgy because it, it, it calls, it recalls a comfort for them of, of mm. something that they've always done and something they've known and something perhaps they did as children. And yet as Christians, I think we're so, um, called to be in the present and we're so called to be in the present in a way that points to, that points heaven face. I mean, I I kept hearing Scott talk and thinking of uh, the and quote I love. Why do we marry? Why take friends and lovers? Why give ourselves to music, painting, chemistry, or cooking? Out of simple delight in the resident goodness of creation, of course, but out of more than that, too, half Earth's gorgeousness lies hidden in the glimpsed city it longs to become. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. I don't know. I just,
3: well, along with what you guys are saying, that's kind of how I responded to uh, the work too, is like um, nostalgia is always looking to the past, but don't we as, as you know, believers look to the future and how do we make the future, the present? So like, is esca like eschatology, eschatology, excuse me. It's early still. Uh, is that like the memory of the future in the present or something like that? Like we're supposed to remember the future and then make it mm. you know, and then act accordingly, um, which is not a nostalgic or maybe even a utopian kind of kind of practice. Uh but it's also not a progressive one too. Like I know like you can think like there's conservatives maybe look to the past and have, you know, the nostalgic and then progressives look to the future, maybe utopian. But I don't I don't think Christians should be either one of those in the sense that we're building the future, but rather we're receiving the future mm-hmm. um in Christ.
0: So neither optimists neither optimist nor pessimist, but shot full with hope. And I think oh. you yeah, know the other the other thing too, I think he mentioned paleo diets, right? Like, and how <laughs> this idea, this idea that, that that we do it with dogs, we do it with people. That if we could get back to what we ate, you know, it's you are what you eat, kind of thing. And which is actually first said by Ludwig Feuerbach. But you know, the uh, the, the about paleo, the eucharist, right? You know, not not about the eucharist, but but <laughs> oh, uh, you, see what I'm think, you see what I'm thinking. You see what I'm thinking because I think the 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 whole nostalgia idea is that if we could ju- if we could just get back to what they were eating. It would make us better. But in liturgy, this climax of of the liturgical event is all eschatology. It's actually a foretaste of the future eating. The idea that if we eat, we will become not like our past, but we'll become more and more. We're shadows, not of our past selves, but our future selves. Mm. And so Mm -hmm. we are what we eat and what we eat and, and who we eat with, which is Christ and with Christ. And in that, we're remembered to him and to one another. Here's to the future, kids and to the future of this podcast, which, Lord willing, will happen yet again next week. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we referenced on our website, ember.com. If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend and maybe even drop over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. We exist because of the enthusiasm support and generosity of you, our readers and listeners. And for that, we are very grateful. Have a great weekend,
1: and we'll see you next week.